immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. This episode is sponsored by Innovate Audio. Innovate Audio offers a range of software-based spatial audio processing tools. Their latest product, PanLab Console, is a Mac OS application that adds 3D spatial audio rendering capabilities to live audio mixing consoles, including popular models from Yamaha, Midas, and Behringer. This means you can achieve an object-based audio workflow utilizing the hardware you already own. Use the code immersive to zero for 20% discount on all PanLab licenses. To find out more, visit innovateaudio.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 86, with me, your host, Oliver Cadell. My guest today, Lorenzo Piccinali. Lorenzo is a reader at Imperial College London, where he leads their audio experience design team. His research focuses on spatial acoustics and immersive audio, looking at perceptual and computational matters, as well as at real-life applications. In recent years, Lorenzo worked on projects related to spatial hearing and rendering, hearing aids technologies, and on acoustics for virtual and augmented reality. He's also been active in the field of eco-acoustic monitoring, designing autonomous recorders and using audio to better understand the impact of humans on the remote ecosystems. Hi, Lorenzo. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Oliver. Thanks. Uh, it's been a little while since I saw you in real life. Um, how have you been? What have you been up to? Yeah, all, all has been fine. I mean, I more recently, I had a lovely summer and then I've been around at conferences and just now came back to London. So all good. Why didn't you tell us a little bit about your recent travels to the conferences? Uh, was it the conference in Turin? Yeah, that was the conference in Turin. Before that, I went to a conference called the Comfort Congress, which was very interesting, where I, I talked a bit about immersive audio, uh, mainly related to our projects on adaptation and accommodation, so how you can learn to localize sources with filters that are not your own. And that was very cool. And then Forum Acousticum in Turin, which was a whole week, 1,200 papers. We had actually two special sessions. From the audio experience design team, we actually had 10 papers there. We were in eight. It was very exciting. And um, yeah, definitely both for the, the presentations that we, we listened to and for all the social events and the chance we had to, to chit-chat with many very, very clever people. Awesome. Well, obviously, you're a very busy academic and researcher, and you're involved with so many projects, and some of them we're going to cover in greater detail on today's interview. Before we do so, um, you've been part of our community for quite some time. Can you please tell us how you got into spatial audio to begin with? I haven't thought too much about this, I have to say. But I think I remember that uh, when I was graduating from my undergraduate, actually a bit a bit earlier, like in my second year, I listened to a binaural recording and I thought that was amazing. And I, uh, when, I, when I discovered that actually wasn't really a new technology, but it had been around for a while, I started thinking, well, that's amazing. Why didn't I know about it? And then I did my, my undergraduate thesis on this. So my project was specifically on binaural. I actually remember uh, getting a hairdresser 
dummy head and then drilling holes and trying putting microphones there. It sounded good, but not great. So then I I got better microphones and then I tried to get actually a mold of my ears and then I was thinking about how to do it. And the first thing that came to mind is to use plaster, which wasn't at all a good idea. I basically plastered both my ears and realized that when the plaster solidified, I couldn't take it off. So I actually had to go to the hospital, which was very embarrassing, but very fun. It's a good story. <laughs> Just curious about when and how did you get started with your Korean audio back in the day in Italy and, and how you ended up here in London with Imperial College? Yeah, so that's an, that's definitely an interesting path. So, well, I, I finished my undergraduate degree in Italy And this was a new degree in sort of computer science and music. And there wasn't any chance to do much more in Italy in terms of academic studies. Could you locate us geographically? Where are you from originally? Sorry, I was in Milan. I was uh, in Milan at the Università degli Studi of Milan. So yeah, I graduated. I didn't know what to do. Then um, I started looking around outside Italy. And um, a person from the department recommended to have a look in Leicester because there was a nice community of of composers and audio uh, electronic music people. And so I visited Leicester. And actually, there was a very nice team, and there still is a nice team of, uh, let's say, music tech people. Um, So I went there and I started an MPhil that then became a PhD. Actually, in the middle of my PhD, I went to France to do a postdoc, which is a bit weird. I did a postdoc before finishing the PhD, but but, but that's how what happened. And that was amazing. I worked with Brian Katz in Paris, and it was an amazing experience. In Leicester, I was the only one doing immersive audio. In in, in Paris, I was the last one doing immersive audio. And it, it was great. I learned so much. Came back to Leicester as a lecturer, um, the university there is, is an ex-polytechnic. I had a very high teaching load. Now, despite the fact that I really had some good colleagues and the atmosphere and the environment was very good, but it was not very, very research focused. So eventually then I decided to move. I started looking at other places and I got this place here at Imperial in 2015. And since then I'm here. Actually, a perfect segue. Um, can you talk about your role at Imperial College London, and uh, specifically also you being a member of Audio Experience Design Research Group. So uh, when I joined here at Imperial, I joined because there was a new department. It's called the Dyneton School of Design Engineering. Now, the name school rather than department is just because it sounds better. But uh, it is basically uh, what we do is, is design engineering. We do and teach design engineering, which is sort of a, of a merge between engineering and design, as you can guess from the name. So what we did here, we had to create a whole new degree, hire 30 and more academics, build research groups. So at the beginning, in the first five years, I really focused a lot on on the design of this new degree and on delivering it. It was a four-year MEng, a Master in Engineering. Then finally, I slowly started uh, getting back to research, rebuilding a team, which eventually I called Audio Experience Design. And then I'd say about four years ago, I I had a son, which was great. And then I, I stopped uh, all my admin duties related with um, teaching side and I could focus a lot on research. So I'd say in the last four years is when we have done the biggest steps forward in terms of research. So nowadays, the audio experience design team is uh, composed by nine full-time people plus myself, uh, and postdocs or PhDs, then we have some part-timers, we have a technician, it is, is, is great. 
now is, is really a big team. We are doing a lot of things. We are starting to get known nationally and internationally. Dyson is, is James Dyson, the famous English inventor who invented the, the world famous vacuum cleaner. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it's him and his foundation. So his foundation gave us a, a large amount of money to build the school with the agreement that we would have kept the name and uh, the, the building where we live, where we are, which is partly built with this donation, uh, is called the Dyson Building. We don't really have any strict relationship with them. I mean, some people from Dyson come over here. We have an exchange, as, as it happens with many other universities. They are part of our industry advisory board. And many of our students end up going there for placement. Mm -hmm. uh, we do get research funding from them, but not differently from any other institution. Well, let's talk about the audio experience design, AXD for short, as a whole. Uh, what its purpose in kind of its most recent reiteration and if you could talk about how it's funded as well. Yes. So, well, it's clear that the majority of the research we do is in the field of spatial acoustics and immersive audio. And I use these two separate expressions to focus on spatial acoustics, which is more uh, related with acoustics and, and numerical side of, of, uh, of immersive audio, 3D audio. So looking at algorithms, simulations, and et cetera. While immersive audio is more related with the perceptual side. So how do we perceive it? And how do we perceive it as being immersive? Um, so we work on these two aspects, trying to understand how people localize sound sources, how people make sense of sound from the spatial perspective, and then use this understanding to develop algorithms and tools that can then allow us to do various things, for example, to mimic the performances of a listener, to um, uh, but also to to trick someone to believe that there are sources where there are not, and generally using a pair of headphones. This is what we we do mainly binaural, so using headphones. Now, um, the third big part of the work we do, and why I was very keen also to talk about audio experience, is uh, the, the 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 applied part. So we have several projects where. We look at how these technologies and this understanding and knowledge can be used in practical applications. So uh, you asked about funding, so I'll give you some ideas. Now, the biggest funder for our lab is uh, the European Union. Specifically, it is, uh, well, Horizon 2020 and now Horizon Europe. In fact, we are very, very happy to hear, well, is a news from last week that the UK is now allowed again to participate to Horizon Europe fundings as coordinator or as they wish, as it was before. This is great. And generally, the EU funds hardcore research, so low technology readiness levels. So just ideas that need to be proven in lab settings are not really ready to be sent out and to become products, which is great. So uh, the US funded this project called Sonicom, I believe we'll talk more about it later, which really focuses on understanding more uh, of the challenges of, of immersive audio and spatial acoustics and trying to, to, to understand better the impact of certain choices, to develop new algorithms and to create a sort of an ecosystem, a framework of tools that can be used beyond the project. And this is EU funded. Then we also have a, a project that is much more on the applied side of things. For example, uh, there's one that is called BEARS, which stands for both ears and is funded by the NIHR, which is the, the research arm of NHS. 
And uh, this is a very applied project where we have uh, incorporated and implemented a series of games. I say incorporated because there were games and applications that we had already developed, but we put them all under one single hat and transformed it in a game. And this game is aimed for uh, teenagers who have a bilateral cochlear implant. So they basically have a, a digital ear in both ears that has been surgically implanted, helping them to relearn how to localize sound source and to merge the streams that they get from the two ears. So to start using those altered cues that are offered by the implants that normally they don't use. And this is through immersive video games with visuals, with audio. So this is a very applied project because we have developed these apps in the last couple of years and now we have started clinical trials. So we'll need to involve about 400, 350 um, teenagers that uh, through several clinics around London and central England, but probably also in Scotland, will be involved in this and this will last three years and we'll understand if this works. And if it does, it's very cool because eventually it could become directly um, part of NHS practice. So I could, you could see maybe teenagers taking home a, an Oculus Quest and, and use it as a, as a, in their therapy, in their, in their training uh, after they have had the surgery. So this is very interesting. So these are examples of different funders, so the EU and, and UK, in this case, the NIHR, that fund different types of projects. We, we have also other projects that are funded uh, maybe by charities. We have a nice one that is funded by the, the Mann Foundation, is the charity that, that is, the, is the foundation that owns um, Oticon, which is one of the biggest hearing aid companies in the world. And they're funding some new research uh, for us to understand what other types of tests that we can do to assess and, and evaluate spatial audio quality. In this case, we use electrophysiology. So we use EEG, which is something completely new for me. So yeah, yeah, these are the main charities, EC, EU, and, and, um, and UK, RI, and, and NIHR, so UK funding. Actually, maybe I can add, we do have uh, uh, several PhD students. Some of them are funded with industry. So we have actually mainly hearing aid companies like, uh, well, again, Oticon or, or Sonova. They co-fund a PhD student, uh, well, two PhD students in this case, exploring different sides of, of again, related with spatial hearing and, and in this case, hearing aids. Excellent. I wanted to form today's discussion on the topic of HRTF dataset, which has been a really important component for research and new technology development. At the same time, what I kept hearing from a lot of people is that there have not been that many very good HRTF datasets available in academia or in industry in general, just because it's, um, it's a, such a time-consuming process and complex process. So as, as part of uh, audio experience design, you actually recently published uh, a result on one of your projects under the title of the Sonicom HRTF dataset. Can you talk about the Sonicom project in general and maybe some key highlights that you published in paper that is relevant to the HRTF dataset as part of this project? Within the Sonicom project, we are, we are partnering with several institutions across Europe to try, well, initially to tackle the issues that are still there in terms of immersive audio for headphones. And HRTFs and HRTF individualization is uh, um, definitely a big issue. So uh, do we need to have a personalized filter when we use 
binaural audio? Um, can we do with the can we select, for example, uh, an HRTF from existing data sets? Are they good? Are they not? And et cetera. So this is a big question. Then Sonicom also looks at the impact of, of all these choices, could be, again, personalization, HRTF, and et cetera, on more complex interactions in virtual reality, which is another very interesting topic. But within the first aim, so the challenges that are still open in, in binaural specialization, what we have done so far is we've looked at various avenues for personalizing HRTFs. So HRTFs can be acoustically measured. And we know that if you are using, I mean, research shows that if you're using a personalized HRTF, you, you, you can have better performances in terms of, for example, localization, mainly for front, back, or up, down. But you can also have a better uh, rendering. You might feel that the rendering is more realistic, more um, immersive, uh, etc. So there are some results that show that. But again, measuring it acoustically is time-consuming and expensive. We have actually created a setup here at Imperial to do acoustic measurements, and we have measured 200 HRTFs, which are the ones that we released within the Sonicom dataset. Again, 200 is a good number, but not um, enormous. I'm one of them. <laughs> oh, amazing. Cool. Do you know which number? Oh, you can't reveal it, probably. Uh, no, I, I don't know. But I've got my sofa <laughs> file. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, so acoustic measurement it was a good starting point. But then we're looking at various things to understand, well, A, what to what extent we need to personalize. So is it really needed a full acoustic measurement or can we do something else? And then what techniques we can use to do this personalization. And there are various techniques. For example, things that we are exploring are um, to create a parametric pinna model. The pinna is the external part of the hearing system, so the part that you see on the sides of the head. Uh, we have created actually two models of the pinna, 3D models of the pinna that can be parameterized changing various uh, elements. Um, and the interesting thing here is that if we have an accurate 3D model of a pinna, we can actually synthesize an HRTF that is personalized. Now, to which extent this works, we still need to uh, evaluate it perceptually, but we can do it mathematically using techniques such as boundary element methods and etc. The problem is obtaining this, this scan, this accurate scan is often difficult. So if we have a model, we could, for example, take a picture, use the picture to calibrate this model, and then derive and synthesize the HRTF, and it could be very interesting. So this is one avenue we are running. Another thing that we're looking at, for example, specifically here at Imperial, is could we upsample a low-resolution HRTF? So let's say that you don't have the space to, to, to have multiple loudspeakers and to do a full sphere with hundreds, thousands of measurements. You can only measure two or three, maybe at home. Put two microphones in the ear canals and measure front, left, up, down, three or four positions. Can we use actually neural networks, so machine learning, in this case specifically we're using generative adversarial networks, which is a very interesting approach to, to machine learning. So can we train them with HRTFs that we have, for example, the 200 for Nisonico dataset, and can we then use the, this pre-trained network to upsample an HRTF with very few positions. And we've shown actually that it re works relatively well. So compared to, for example, standard linear interpolation techniques, it performs significantly better when you have very low number of measured sources. So someone could measure at home five positions and we would upsample it to a few thousand or a few hundred um, with potentially minimal error. Now, uh, again, how relevant this is perceptually, something we still need to 
to tackle. But I'd say that here we have touched on an important topic, which is, for example, what using existing data, for example, to train a neural network. And what we have tried to do also is try to understand how much we can put together HRTFs measured from different data sets. At the moment, to our knowledge, there is uh, the data sets uh, of the, uh, the Vienna um, um, Acoustics Institute, which is a partner in Sonicom, which is larger than ours. Other than that, I, I'm not aware of any larger data sets, public data set of HRTFs. So we could put together several HRTF data sets around the globe and get to probably 1,500, maybe 2,000 measured HRTFs. But can we use these together? The research shows us that uh, we shouldn't without being very careful. Uh, there is a very interesting project. It was called Club Fritz, where uh, it was led actually by Brian Katz in Paris and Duran Begol at the Ames Research Center in, in the Bay Area. And they sent around a Neumann KU100 dummy head to different labs across the world. And in each of these labs, the, 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 the HRTF of that Neumann was measured. Then they compared between them. And interestingly, despite the fact that the, 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 the dummy head and the microphones were exactly the same, they found rather significant differences in the measurements, which shows that to a certain extent, my own HRTF measured in two different labs could be more different than two different HRTFs measured in the same lab to a certain extent again. So it is interesting, this thing, that there are now, there have been recent papers also from the Sonicom Consortium trying to understand, can we compensate for these differences? Because they are unlikely to be very complex direction-dependent differences, but they're probably due to, again, the measurement setup and a few other things. But this is an interesting topic because if we, if we have only a few uh, hundreds uh, measured HRTF and we want to use them together, for example, for machine learning, we need to learn how to put them together, and we need to understand how different these are depending on where they have been measured. I mean, this is an example of, of the work we are doing within Sonicom related with HRTF personalization. I can, of course, tell you more if you want to. I think we should, and I'd love to hear more. And I know you kind of expanded on various areas of this project, and I just wanted to distill once more, like what kind of unique features this particular data set can offer and how does it improve upon what's already out there, all these like existing, maybe more outdated data sets, because uh, you've mentioned machine learning, also the kind of data you've captured, you've scanned people and uh, there were like a number of things that you were capturing that you mentioned in the paper that can be used in conjunction with HRTF measurement that can help the personalization aspect, but also um, kind of broad range um, collection of, of data sets. Now, I have to be honest, I think one of the main reasons why we measure this data set is because when we do perceptual evaluations, it is always very good to have a certain number of people that are available and that have their own HRTF measured. Because when we didn't have this data set, then any participant to our test either had their HRTF measured from another lab, which is very unlikely, or, or they didn't have their own HRTF, which is problematic because if you want to assess how important it is to personalize HRTF, but we don't have access to the fully personalized one, that is problematic. So this is one of the main reasons. The other reason is that we wanted to have one data set that was fully released. In fact, if you go now to the Sonicum, um, website, you can actually just download straight away our data set to the AXD website, actually, we'll redirect you to that, but you can download it, is that we wanted in one single data set to have 
a, a good amount, well, a large amount of information which didn't really appear in the past in a single data set. So you can actually download the full resolution HRTF and you can download different versions of it. So you can download one without the interval time differences, for example, then one that is compensated, one that is uncompensated, different sampling rate. So you have different versions of this. Then for every subject, you also have a headphone transfer function for the ones who want to um, compensate, for example, for the filter that is induced by wearing a pair of headphones on the head. Now, this is done only for a pair of headphones, which are the Sennheiser HD650, but we do have five measurements for each subject on this. And then in addition to this, again, for every subject, we have a, a full 3D scan of their head done with a high resolution lasers. Well, not laser, it was a infrared scanner, which again is very high resolution, uh, specifically around the ears, um, and uh, is related directly to the measured HRTF because it's where every subject has their own. And then some photogrammetry data as well. So every subject, for every subject, we, we also release a picture that has been taken every five degrees of azimuth on the horizontal plane, which could itself be used to generate 3D models using photogrammetry data. So this covers everything that we need within the Sonicom project, and in general, everything that you might need uh, within uh, uh, an HRTF personalization study. So you can generate the HRTF uh, by using the 3D model that we have done. You can generate it by using the full head uh, and torso, or by removing the head using only the pin and stitch them on a dummy head, on a virtual dummy head, of course. Or you could, for example, use the photogrammetry data to generate a 3D model, maybe mimicking whatever Apple is doing now. I, I don't actually know what Apple is doing, but at least they start from a few pictures. So that could be an interesting thing. And you can compare the output of all these with an actual acoustically measured HRTF, which would be, which is very interesting because these all these data is linked for every subject. So having 200 subjects that are always available, completely available, you can download them now for which you have all these data is something somehow unique, I would say, that has not been released yet. But rather than releasing the ultimate tool or the ultimate data set, we just really wanted to build on existing ones. In fact, in, in a lot of our research, we, we do use a lot of other data sets. Now, we tend not to use the very old ones, like the MIT one from 1994, but also the CIPIC, we don't use it anymore because it has been measured a lot of time ago and there are various known issues with those data sets. But for example, the CIPIC was often used because it provided anthropometric data, like data about the pinna of the user. And this data is provided with Sonicom. We don't provide it directly. You just need to extract it from the 3D model, but it's relatively easily extractable, let's say. And what we're doing now also, we are extending the data set by adding 1,000 other HRTFs, not measured by subjects, but these are generated using our parametric PINA model. We generated a random number of HRTF, randomizing the selection of the various parameters of the PINA. And in this case, you'll have 1,000 HRTFs that have been synthesized, and for each of them, you have the exact 3D model and the parametric PINA model parameters. So that's going to be very useful for machine learning. And uh, at the same time, we will also release um, the soon the data of the years that have been removed from the head, so you can stitch them to, to, to other heads and, and, and facilitate the HRTF synthesis process. So I, I do think it's a very interesting data set. And we have not finished. Uh, I mean, at the moment, we're running a few other experiments in our lab, but in January, we will restart measuring HRTF and our target 
is to at least get another 200, uh, possibly more subjects. In terms of the actual measurement, the acoustic measurement, uh, in, in some parts we're using some pretty standard elements. So in our case, the, the, the person rotates rather than loudspeaker array, which is rather common. Rotating loudspeaker arrays are, is, is, have, is more difficult. Uh, we have a very good aligning process compared to other um, labs where they measure HRTF. So we have uh, three laser um, that are used to align the head. Once it's aligned, we have a full infrared tracking system that tracks the position of the head. And if you move your head slightly during one of the measurements, it repeats it. And then, interestingly, we have uh, our 23 loudspeakers are actually full-range loudspeakers that have got um, a relatively low a frequency response without having a crossover, which is another interesting thing. We really wanted to avoid potential phasing issues of crossover. So they have a single driver uh, that goes down to about 60, 50 hertz relatively easily without much distortion. So it is full range, uh, hopefully with a, with a very good phase and frequency response. Anyway, we do provide the, the, the measurement impulse response. So if someone wants, can also uh, compensate and remove it. So in, in general, I think is, is a very good and useful data set. Last thing that I would add is all these audio files are then released in SOFA format, which is a standard for, for, for exchanging HRTF data nowadays. And they are in a format that can be directly um, used and imported in our own renderer, which is the 3D TuneIn Toolkit, is released as a Unity asset, as a VST plugin, or as a standalone application, which, which makes it very interesting. Now, together with the University of Malaga, who is a partner in Sonicom and who, who contributed, obviously, to create the toolkit, we are creating a new version, which is called the Binaural Rendering Toolbox, and we'll soon release that, that, that will substitute the 3D TuneIn Toolkit and, and allow us to move forward in that domain. In terms of general knowledge, published knowledge, we haven't been able yet to say that these methods are effective. I give you an interesting example that I've always thought, actually two examples. <laughs> the first one, which I always find interesting, and is how I, I generally start my course on, on immersive audio here. So there is a, a very interesting uh, video from, um, I think from the 50s, I think, where there is, is, is a movie where there is someone escaping from um, soldiers in, in the sewage and um, and he's, he's running around pipes and different things. And at a certain point, he arrives in this larger uh, underground room where there are different sewage pipes arriving from different directions. And he hears sounds from all these different directions pointing in different positions and etc. And once you play that back to people, you're asking them, is this immersive? And they say, yes, because it is very immersive. At the end, though, the audio is mono. So it is immersive because of the context, because of the reverberation, because of what you know about the story, because of how the camera moves. Another thing that I'd like to mention as an example is like the virtual barbershop. Many people are familiar with listening to the virtual barbershop on YouTube is a famous, one of the first famous binaural recordings, someone cutting your hair, you really feel the scissor close by, you feel things happening around you. And that is very immersive, even though it's not personalized. And actually in that case, it's not even head tracked. You don't have a head tracking. So if you turn your head, all the sound sources turn with you. So these two examples are examples of immersive audio that doesn't have any, that doesn't have, it's not very uh, accurate, actually, is not at all accurate from a numerical perspective, but still works. So there is a lot into this domain. And and just personalizing in HRTF, it doesn't mean that it's going to make your rendering immersive and amazingly surrounding, and, and, and it's going to make it exactly the same as, as real life. But there are things that are. 
going to be able to do that. And certain elements of personalization are more important than others. So the challenge for us is to understand what these are uh, and to, 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 to share this knowledge so that we can build more tools and industry partners can build tools as well. Obviously, the, 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 the challenge for an industry is to sell more products. So they don't really need to advance knowledge. They just need to make better products. For us, it's a bit harder. Uh, and I'm saying this because, yes, sometimes I present our work and then someone from the audience asks, well, but Apple has already done it. And I need to answer, well, I don't know, maybe they know something we don't, but I think it's unlikely. So probably they've already created a product that does some sort of personalization, but this is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand what is needed and what is important for our special hearing system. Yeah, I definitely agree with you with the kind of more philosophical approach about the immersion. There's so many aspects at play when it comes to unpicking the concept phenomena of immersion. Going back to this particular component of this massive equation, I, I guess the what I'm hearing from you is that the answer is not as simple. Potentially there are different companies and academic entities that are trying to solve the problem or trying to even better understand all the building blocks of this ultimately relying on technologies such as machine learning. Maybe at this point, we're just going to end up with different companies, different people doing the same process in different ways and there are different flavors. But ultimately, it's it's very marginal. And like you said, like uh, just maybe the, the context and the content and the uh, uh, situation and state of mind in in that moment will be responsible for 85% of perception uh, versus uh, maybe 5% of, of what the algorithm can do. No, no, but I, it's all perfectly understandable and, and it is a complex matter. And, and there is an interesting in understanding how these things can be observed and measured perceptually and numerically. And there is an interest in understanding what impact they will have. Um, so again, we know that head tracking and personalization and reverberation are important, uh, but we know of uh, audio without head tracking and personalization that works amazingly well. But one task that we are tackling now is we know from past research and also from research we've done ourselves that using an HRTF that is personalized allows you to achieve a better localization performance, specifically when, when you're trying to discriminate whether the source is on the front or on the back or above or below. At the same time, to verify this, the only available test at the moment is a localization test. Now, a localization test, I don't know if I've ever done one, but it's a test where you have your head still, you listen to a short sound, generally is a noise burst or something else, it could be speech, very short, you can't move your head when you hear it, and then you point to a direction where you think the sound came from. So this is a blind localization test, and it's a standard. Uh, if you want to measure how well your system works, your HRTF works, you need to perform these tests. Now, the issue is that we don't do blind source localization in our everyday life. There is no situation in which in our everyday life we need to localize the position of a sound source, eyes closed, without moving our head. Maybe we need to hear where the car is coming from. In that case, we can move our head, but most of all, whenever we see the car, so we just need to understand if it's left or right, once we have seen it, then the eyes take over. Uh, maybe you have lost your phone and you need to search for it and then it, it reproduces, it makes like a sound and you just need to find where it is, fine, but you can still turn your head. So the issue of the current localization tests is that A, they are very susceptible to training. So lab rats, and by lab rats, I mean 
people like us who spend time in research and have done this test many times, they're significantly better than naive listeners. No matter whether there is a personalization or not, we perform better because we have localized sources for much longer. And the second um, issue is that to measure a difference of performances between a personalized HRTF and a non-personalized, you need to run a very long test in order to get a significant difference, a statistically significant difference. The gold standards are the tests that they do, for example, in Vienna. We are talking about nearly a thousand repetitions of a localization task, which takes about an hour and a half. This is a tremendously long and tiring test, and it's the only one that will show you a significant difference between a personalized and a non-personalized HRTF. And I think this is a main challenge in our domain. We need to better understand how to quantify the differences, how to understand the impact of numerical differences in, into perceptual parameters, and in general, how does this affect our perception of spatial audio? Uh, when is it important to do certain personalization and when is absolutely not relevant. And here I think the whole domain of augmented reality will help. Augmented reality is very interesting from an acoustic perspective. So normally you would have an open ear canal, so not having it occluded by a headphone, and you'll have a, maybe a little loudspeaker that from above, like, like I know the Bose glasses or the Oculus Quest will reproduce sound in the canal. So you have a, a good blend of virtual and real. With your real ear, you listen to sound coming from the environment. So you're using effectively your own HRTF, of course. And with the virtual loudspeaker, we want to reproduce something that perfectly blends with the real sound around you. And in that case, HRTF matching or HRTF individualization is as a whole different meaning. We need to ensure that whatever we reproduce matches perfectly with whatever you're hearing with your own ear. And I think that's, that's going to be very interesting. It's going to be a very interesting domain of research. Also because audio and acoustics is very advantaged compared to vision. Uh, in augmented reality, we are still very far from being able to blend a virtual layer with a real one. You always see what is virtual and what is real. From the auditory perspective, we are very close of being able to reproduce a virtual sound. And people will not be able to say, is that coming from the environment or not? And that's very challenging, but very cool, very interesting. Let's bring it down to earth and going back to the immediate usefulness of this project, you know, are there any current or future applications in the industry that this data set can be useful for? Are there any collaborations that are happening already that you can talk about? There are definitely applications in the domain of virtual reality and augmented reality. We know of companies such as Sony, but also Meta that have actually used our data set and are planning to use it more in the future, which is definitely very interesting and rewarding for us. In that case, I mean, they work in augmented and virtual reality applications, so having more data could be interesting. And hopefully, uh, more validations will come out. I mean, as you know, we published the paper validating for validating our data set, and we've done some numerical validations, but not much in terms of um, perceptual validation. So hopefully, if it's going to be used more and more, we'll understand how good it is with time. But I think in augmented and virtual reality applications, again, uh, goggles, the, the, it, it is definitely clear how the data set could be used. But I'd say that it could be used well beyond that. I mean, in general, in, in scientific research on spatial hearing, it is good to have a very high resolution HRTF data set that, uh, that is, comes together with a lot of data about the, the anthropometry of the person and the shapes of the ear and the 3D models. 
Um, also looking at other applications, I mean, I mentioned before this BEARS project where we're using um, the Oculus Quest and, and certain spatial audio video games we have created to train cochlear implant users in so using both implants. In that case, we use our HRTFs. In that case, we use only our Kimar HRTF, which is a sort of a generic HRTF and not the personalized ones. But it is still of interest to use it for those purposes. Um, then there are several other applications. For example, one work that we have done in, um, in, um, in Sonicum is we've started looking at the impact of HRTF choice on voice perception in virtual reality. We, we have often been talking about the fact that, for example, when we have conversations online on Teams, on Zoom, or et cetera, um, the audio is generally mono. Could we make it spatial? Could that improve, for example, our ability to understand speech when more people are talking at the same time? And it definitely could. But what is the impact of having your own HRTF there? And we have shown that actually, if you use your own HRTF, you have increased performances in what we refer to as spatial release for masking. So the ability to discriminate between different sources or maybe a target and a masker, thanks to spatial differences. So using your own HRTF could improve speech intelligibility in virtual and augmented reality. And this is a, a big um, outcome because it might I mean, in, f in the future, I mean, I don't know if you've ever used the Meta Quest for doing online conferences. We've used it only once and it's been a bit messy, but, but it works relatively well. So if you are motivated, you can make it work well. But in those situations, personalizing HRTF could have a, a relatively big impact or at least a significant impact if compared with using um, generic HRTFs. So that's an interesting outcome, I'd say, and a, a potential good application for the future. Are there any other interesting projects as part of um, audio experience design group uh, on your roster that you would like to talk about and share with the community? One is um, ecoacoustic monitoring. So we've started a few years ago to use sound and acoustics as a, as a way to monitor the, the ecosystem of remote forests. We have developed a recorder that can be put on a tree and they will autonomously record and stream audio that is recorded. And actually you can keep doing it for months uh, even years if you place the solar panel well and have a good battery. Um, and uh, more recently, we've actually developed a six channels version of this recorder and has got a little circular array of microphones. And we start doing also some, some spatial sound analysis and localization, which is very interesting. And, uh, and then we have some pre-trained neural networks that can start predicting things from this audio, starting from simple things like, is it day or night, which location is the recorded in, for example, in a given forest, uh, obviously looking only at the audio. But then we have started looking at more, more complex estimates. For example, we have done a paper, we have published a paper where we try to use acoustics only to do species count, to estimate how many occurrences of a, of a specific call have happened. Um, or how likely it is for a given number of animals to be in a given area. And this is very, very interesting, and we're very proud of this project. It's not a large project, the acoustic bit, because it's mainly PhD students, uh, but, uh, but it, it is a very interesting avenue for the future. And then another project that I'd mention is a project we're running with Sonova, again, a hearing aid company. And in this case, we're looking at music listening with hearing aids. So hearing aids have been designed mainly for speech understanding and have 
but sometimes speech intelligibility actually often doesn't go in the same direction as speech quality. So some speech could be very low quality, but very intelligible, which is exactly what you would hear from hearing aids. Uh, when you listen to music, though, uh, intelligibility starts having other meanings and quality starts becoming much more important. And so the concept there is to try to understand how we can calibrate, set, or what is needed in order to improve hearing aids performances with music, which at the moment are very bad. Uh, so at the moment we are designing uh, and training uh, an artificial listener to predict the quality of certain choices in the processing. And this is, I think, a very interesting domain that I would mention. Lorenzo, what is the best way to find out more about yourself and all the work and projects you've mentioned so far? Um, I'd say the best thing would be to check in our, our website, axdesign.co.uk. Uh, we update it regularly. Uh, now we also have a Twitter account. I actually don't know it, uh, but you'll find it from our AX design website. You'll find everything there and, and we'll point you out to where you can find more regular information. If you are in the London area, you can come to visit. Just drop an email and we'll see. And from January, we'll measure HRTFs again. So you can come to measure your own HRTFs. Excellent. And we'll make sure to include all the relevant links in the podcast show notes as always. And lastly, what piece of advice could you give to anyone that helped you in your career? Um, I am an academic because I like doing what I do and I don't like doing what I'm told in case I'm, in case it's something I'm not interested in. Obviously there are other difficulties. Uh, for example, the salary is not as good as you would be in industry, but I have all the freedom I want. So my suggestion is choose carefully. If you, if you really want to realize your own projects, think about an academic career, uh, but also think that it's tough because you need to fund them. Uh, no one is going to give you money for free. I mean, you, you will need to find, to convince people to fund your research, but that's cool. Otherwise, you can join large companies, those smaller startups in the audio domain. The, the, that's very fascinating and very cool. The potential issues that you will need to work possibly, at the beginning at least, unless it's your own, on ideas of other people, which could be very rewarding as well. But think carefully about what you want to do and choose one or another avenue. I think that's that's about it. I mean, just do what you're interested in. Uh, that's the most important. That's a very frank and sobering advice. I really like it. Lorenzo, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much to you. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing other podcasts on the same topic in the future. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Immersive Audio Podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott, Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.